Praise God. All right, let's take our Bibles out, folks, and let's open them to the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And um, we're going to just walk through this passage of Scripture today. And I, I just wrote down in my, my notes the wonderful Word of God, the wonderful Word of God. What a privilege and joy it is to gather in the house of the Lord to worship <clears throat> and to, uh, to teach and to listen and to preach to pray, uh, but also to open the word together. And it is my joy uh, today as we, as we worship him to, uh, to open the word. You know, um, as we study the word of God, uh, God shows us or he teaches us who he is. And in doing that, he shows us and teaches us who we are and how those two things relate together. Last week uh, in, uh, in this 12th chapter of Hebrews, we looked over this passage beginning in verse 3 and going down through uh, verse uh, 13. Uh, the passage that really dealt with our suffering. And, uh, and we saw how, you know, the, the Lord says, uh, accept suffering as God's discipline. That is, God is at work. Uh, that God is, is active in this world and he's active in your life and he's got a purpose and plan. And sometimes this, this comes, uh, the, 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 the teaching or the training or the correcting of God, because none of us are perfect, comes in the form of hard times, difficulties, suffering, pain, trials, tribulations, all these things. And however they come into our lives, Scripture says that God uses them for our good, that God uses them to teach and to train us. But um, I, I was asking myself the question because I, I wasn't quite sure that I, uh, that I explained this perfectly last week or that we really got the full gist of it. You know, I mentioned that uh, sometimes we view God as an emergency room doctor that when we get in trouble or something bad happens, we go to the doctor and we, want him, we go to the emergency room and we want him to put everything back in place and then we're good, right, to make us feel better. And, uh, and God does that. God sometimes is an emergency room doctor, I think. And I thank God that we can go run into him when we're in trouble or we have hurt or pain. But it might very well be that more often than not, God is more like the surgeon who takes the scalpel and he inflicts the pain. He inflicts the wound in order for our healing because it is always the God who loves us, who cares for us and who is growing us in him. And you know, I got to thinking about it this week, though, that the God who uses suffering in this world, or uh, God who is active in a world of suffering and pain, and he's active in our lives, how does that fit with all the things that we've been uh, talking about here in terms of faith? Uh, because I would just remind you that, that the entire overview of uh, the book of Hebrews is keep your eyes on the prize. And that is Jesus is the prize. Okay? And we are running a race. And it is the race of life. And it is the race of faith. Or we run by faith. We run the race of life by faith, maybe is the way I ought to say it. And in, uh, uh, in that 11th chapter, he went through all of those people of faith. Some of them had good times. Some of them had hard times. But they kept on running. And that, was, that is the encouragement. Okay, So the encouragement here for us as God's people, as people engaged in the race, race of life and running with Jesus by faith, the encouragement is don't quit running, all right? So keep on running. In fact, you see that in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says 
Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses, and he just talked about all those folks in chapter 11, and here now is the encouragement to us, and notice that therefore, because all of that is true, that people from the very beginning have been running this race by faith. He says, then uh, let us, this is what we should do, lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So there is the encouragement. And so run with endurance. And now, then he goes through this, this bit about suffering and endure suffering as God's discipline. And I think the concern, though, becomes, well, what if I have troubles, I have hard times, and I want to quit, I want to drop out? And there's been a whole lot of people (coughs) that do this. Things get hard, things get rough, we drop out of the race. We decide, no, it's not worth it, I can't handle it, or whatever. The encouragement is to continue running by faith, endure. But what happens if I face so much stuff that I just can't, endure and what he what he says here is is well wait a minute but this is the activity of God in your life and so what he's trying to do is encourage us in the face of suffering or encourage us in a world that is literally falling apart and there's trouble there's heartache there's pain there's all of these things he is encouraging us to continue on in fact you see that in the next verses that we ended uh, with verse 12 and 13 last week but he says in verse 12 therefore and that is because all that's true because of all that suffering is god at work in our lives correcting us moving us changing us whatever therefore since all that's true strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead and again you see he says so so continue on right i mean that's the encouragement but even though the, all that's true okay i'm going through hard times okay i'm i'm facing trial tribulation difficulty but god loves me and he is at work in my life and the encouragement is to keep on running. So what should I do? Strengthen these, uh, these weak hands, these tired hands and these weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that you can keep on running. That is, God is at work in your life, so you keep on working. And in the next couple, or you keep on striving or you keep on running. And actually, the next couple of verses kind of show how these two things connect together, how the suffering that we go through or the difficulties or the trials connect with our enduring by faith or in faith in the race. So look at verse 14. So he says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Pursue peace and holiness. Now, look at the word pursue. That's the running part, okay? Now, I'm not pursuing anything if I've dropped out of the race. I'm not I'm not continuing on if I am not pursuing, right? And so to endure means i got to keep pursuing. Well, well, who am I chasing after or what am I chasing after? Well, he says, first of all, pursue peace with everyone. And let me just remind you that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. If I'm pursuing peace, I'm going after Jesus. I got that? Okay. If I'm pursuing peace, so here's the encouragement. Keep on running. Don't quit. Don't let these things overcome you. Don't drop out. So how do I run? Well, pursue peace. That is, in the face or the presence of trial, tribulation, I'm running after Jesus. And then he says, and pursue holiness. In fact, that word pursue connects not just with 
peace, but also holiness. Now, what is holiness? Well, that's the separation of God or separation in God. God is holy. The Lord Jesus is our holiness. If I'm pursuing holiness, then again, I'm running after God, right? Jesus being the only perfect one. So again, here we go. The encouragement is in the face of all of this stuff. I'm running after these things of God, the peace of God, the holiness of God. And I want you to notice, in fact, look in your Bibles down in verse 10. I want you to see what is happening here. He says, uh, he's talking about our parents. They discipled us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, speaking of God, does it. And he's talking about the discipline of God or the suffering that we endure. He does it for our benefit so that we can share his what? Holiness. Do you see that? His holiness. That is, God is at work in your life producing holiness, so pursue holiness. The presence of God in your life is producing peace, so, produce, so pursue peace. Pursue peace with everyone. Pursue the holiness of God. That is, keep on running. And look at what he says down in the last part of that 14th verse. He says, without it, no one will see the Lord. Without what? Without peace and holiness or without the pursuit of peace and holiness, no one will see the Lord. That means a couple of things. That means if you, child of God, if you're a believer, and you decide, well, I'm just going to give up. I'm tired. I'm old. Things are too tough. Things are too hard. I'm just going to go back to my old way. I'm just going to live like everybody else. I'm not going to keep running this race of faith. You're not going to see God, and nobody around you is going to see God. Because you see, when a child of God is running by faith, when you are living out your life by faith, you're running this race of faith in the midst of all this turmoil, this tragedy, this trial, all the things that are, when you are still living your faith, even in the midst of your grief or your heartache or your pain or whatever it is, knowing that God loves you and God is still at work in your life, and you're living that life of faith, other people are looking at you and they're going to see God. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, that's what it means. That's, what, that's, what the, that's the difference that God makes in life. I want something like that. What that does is, is that makes a child of God winsome in the way that people look at you and they say, I want what she's got. I want what he has. Because this whole world is falling apart. Life is falling apart. And yet he has this peace and this rightness with God, which is holiness. He's got all this or she's got this. And I've never seen anything like it. I sure don't see it in these people that are chasing after all this other stuff in the world. I don't see this other. Everybody else's life falling apart and they're falling apart. Here's somebody that's not falling apart. And the only difference is, is they have faith in Jesus Christ and he lives within them. Do you understand? He says, without this... Without this pursuit of peace and holiness, that is, if you drop out of the race, you decide you're going to quit, you don't endure in your faith, not only are you not going to see God, but nobody else is going to see God either. And beloved, there is a world filled with darkness and pain and people desperate for Jesus, and they'll never see him if they never see him in your life. And that's why he encourages us to endure. But it goes on beyond that. Look down at verse 15. He says, and make sure no one falls short of the grace of God. Make sure no one falls short of the grace of God. What does that mean? How do you fall short of the grace of God? 
By the way, this word fall short is the same word that's used back in Romans 323. You remember that verse? It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is because of your sin. You're not perfect. You have not attained that place that God wants you to be. And so you're going to need something to happen to you, and that something's going to have to be Jesus. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says here, make sure that nobody falls short of God's grace. And I would just remind you again that grace is the gift of God. It is the unmerited favor of God. It's what, give, it's what God gives us when we deserve something else. If you fall short of God's grace, it means you're not going to receive everything that God's got for you. And watch this. Same thing as we said just a moment ago. Not only will other... If you, if you stop, if you don't endure in your faith, if you fall out or drop out because it's too hard or, or you're too old or you're too tired or, or somebody did something or said something against you or whatever it was, if you don't endure or persevere in your faith, not only are you not going to see God, you're going to fall short of God's grace in your life. Other people are not going to see God and they're never going to receive God's grace. Why? Because God is planning on using you. He is using you right now to touch somebody else's life so that they can see Jesus, so that they can experience his grace. And that's why it says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. So again, the encouragement is we've got to keep on running by faith. We don't have any other choice. Child of God, believer, no matter what you're going through or what's happening right now, understand God loves you, he is with you, he is for you, but he's at work in your life. And sometimes like a surgeon, that knife cuts and it hurts. But he knows what he's doing. Don't quit, don't drop out. You keep on running because if you do, not only are you going to miss out, but other people are going to miss out too. And you're going to fall short of the grace of God. So, Here's the question. This is what I want to deal with this morning in these next couple of verses. How do I know if I'm falling short of God's grace? Is there something I can look at in my life and I can say, okay, because of this, because of these things, maybe I'm falling short of God's grace. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, cutting out some time. Maybe I'm stopping. Maybe I'm not enduring in the race. What does it look like if a child of God drops out or stops enduring in the race of faith? And there's three things that he shares with us here that I want to show you. This is, and, this, and what I'm asking you to do is to consider or look at your own life here, okay? And I, I'm just calling this falling short of God's grace. What does that look like in your life? Okay, number one, it looks like bitterness in the face of life's hurts. Bitterness from the hurts of life. And whatever hurts those may be, may come in many different ways. You get hurt and you get bitter. Look down at the last part of verse 15. Or go back to the first part of 15. He says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Now, beloved, bitterness is an attitude of the heart that comes into our life from an unwillingness to let go of the past or an unwillingness to forgive. Bitterness is something that springs up within us. 
from hurts that come into our life and we refuse to let go of. And he says here that this root of bitterness that springs up, and it can just spring right up. And I'll share with you in a minute how that happens. It's really crazy. It can spring up, and it says it causes trouble and defiles many. Now, the trouble that bitterness, that the bitterness in your life causes, it doesn't cause trouble for anybody else. It causes trouble for you. It doesn't defile anybody else. It defiles you. If bitterness is a part of your life, and how does bitterness come? Well, somebody does something or somebody says something or somebody hurts me in some way and I'm not willing to let go of it, I'm not willing to forgive, that defiles me. That causes trouble for me. That doesn't bother the one I'm not forgiving. It doesn't hurt the one that, uh, that I can't uh, get past what they did or what they said, right? It defiles me, it hurts me. And so what happens is, is this is produced in our life when we are hurt and we refuse to forget. We say, well, I can't get over that or I'm not going to get over it or I'm not going to let that go. Somebody did something, somebody said something, somebody didn't do something they should have. Some, somebody didn't say something they should have, you know. It's kind of like, well, the preacher didn't even shake my hand and now I'm mad at him. I mean, that's happened to me before, right? I mean, what that does is that defiles me. We take offense we are hurt, we are offended, and we refuse to be reconciled. And before we know it, this bitterness has sprung up. And what it does is, is it causes us to fall short of the grace of God. Let me show you how this works. Personal testimony. So a number of years ago, uh, I did something, or I actually I didn't do something, that caused offense to a brother of mine, a friend of mine. And uh, we had a good relationship, and I did this. And I've always marveled at the fact that I'm able to open my mouth and insert my foot just like that. And as soon as I, yeah, I see that hand, brother. And, uh, you know, some of us are better at it than others, right? To say the wrong thing at the right time or the right thing at the wrong time, you know? And so, anyway, that's what I did. And uh, he came to me. He was mad, and he was really upset, and he explained to me what all I did. And I didn't really feel like I was all wrong. I feel like that he was wrong some because this could have been taken care of a different way. But anyway, uh, and, I, and my intent was not to hurt. And so anyway, but he was upset and he told me that. So I humbled myself and I said, well, brother, look, man, I'm sorry. I really, I, I didn't intend. Will you forgive me? And he said, I don't think I can. He said, I, I can't forgive this. And so then my response was, and again, you know, if I could just keep my mouth shut, it would make things a whole lot better. But my response was, well, well, man, I sure hope that you don't have anything that you need God to forgive because if you can't forgive me, God can't forgive you. Right? And I said it kind of like that. And, uh, yeah, it, I mean, and almost kind of like, yeah, yeah, you're not going to be for, Because that's what the Bible says, right? I mean, honestly, I, I thought I was kind of sharing what the Bible said. But, I, well, if you can't forgive me, then God can't forgive you. And you know, as I, was, as I was working through this this past week, I got to realize, you know, so, so there's bitterness in this brother's life because now we had a broken relationship and he was really upset and bitter towards me and it defiled him and it hurt him, right? But you know, I realized that there was some bitterness in my life as well because I felt injured. 
you really accused me of something I don't think I did. I tried, to, I tried to humble myself, and you wouldn't accept it. You wouldn't receive it. And now I'm the one, you know, feeling injured. I'm feeling hurt. And now I'm refusing to forgive. And now the bitterness is welling up within me. And I had to, honestly, I had to get down on my knees before God this past week and ask God, God, will you forgive me of this bitterness? Now, now praise the Lord. And this is something that I've held on to. And I, I'm just confessing, all right? You know, this brother and I have been restored. Our relationship has been restored. Praise God to the glory of God. I don't know if it's, it's exactly what it all ought to be, but, but I think it begins as, first of all, we recognize that there is hurt in this world, and if we hold on to it or refuse to let go of it, this bitterness is going to spring right up. And if I'm holding on to that, or really what's happening, I'm pursuing that, I'm not pursuing the peace of God with everybody. I'm not pursuing the holiness of God. And if I'm not pursuing the peace of God and the holiness of God, then people aren't seeing Jesus in me. I'm not seeing the Lord, and I'm falling short of the glory of God, everything that God has for me. Do you see how this thing works? And this is why I said, take care. Watch this. Be vigilant of this. Sorry, sometimes the words themselves don't come out. Be vigilant here. Watch your life. Guard against the tendency to take offense and hold offense. Because forgiveness and letting go is vital if we are going to pursue the peace of God and pursue the holiness of God. And what I'm saying that that if we're not doing that or, or if we allow the bitterness or we're holding on to that, we are falling short of God's grace. Okay, see how that works? So bitterness is the first thing. Bitterness over the hurts of life. The second thing here is contempt for the things of God. Contempt for the things of God. And the example he gives us here is an Old Testament character named Esau. Look down at verse uh, 16 and 17. And make sure, he says, so he's just told us about bitterness. Watch out for that. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau. Now, he's speaking to us. Make sure there's no irreverent or immoral person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find an opportunity for repentance. Now, now he's... Uh, the, the illustration he uses here is coming from Genesis 25, 26, and 27. You can go back and read the whole story this afternoon. But basically, Esau was the oldest son of Isaac, one of the patriarchs. And uh, Abraham was his grandfather. He was the firstborn son, but he was a twin. His brother's name was Jacob. Esau came out first. Jacob came out holding on to uh, uh, to Esau's heel because he wanted to be first. That was the implication, and that's why they named him you know, trickster or Jacob or supplanter or the heel grabber really is what that name means. And as the firstborn, uh, Esau received the, uh, the birthright. And what the birthright from his father meant was that he was going to get a double inheritance. Now, the way that worked was uh, the father would divide all of his property into thirds if, if they're two boys, he would divide it into thirds, and the oldest would get two parts, the youngest would get one part. If there were five boys, then he would divide it into sixth, and the oldest would get two-sixths, and the other uh, would get one-sixth, right? Okay, so, so the, 
so the oldest received the double inheritance. This is part of the birthright. And he was the one that was going to get the blessing from the father. Well, Esau's twin brother, Jacob, couldn't be any more different from him. Esau was an outdoor guy. He was rough and rugged. He liked to hunt and fish and all that other kind of stuff, you know, and uh, play golf maybe. I mean, he was, you know, he was an outdoor guy. Uh, uh, Jacob was more of a mama's boy. He hung around in the tent, you know, cooking and cleaning with mama and all those other things, right? And so, and so they were absolutely different. One day Esau comes in. He's been out doing whatever, working in the field, and he's hungry, and he's real hungry. And uh, Jacob has cooked up a, a, a pot of stew. And he says, hey, Jacob, son, give me, give me some of that stew. And Jacob's like, well, I'm not going to give it to you, but I'll sell it to you. Well, well what, I can't pay you. What, pay you what? He said, I want you to sell me your birthright. I'll give you all the stew you want for your birthright. And Esau is kind of like, well, at birthright, ain't doing me any good. I'm sitting here starving to death, you know. So, okay, fine. I'll sell you my birthright for the bowl of stew. And I'm not exactly sure if... They wrote out a contract or anything else like this. I want you to notice they came to this agreement. Isaac did not. Okay, just keep that in mind for a second. But anyway, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, right? Now, the birthright, again, was the grace of God in his life. It's the gift of God. It's what God was doing in him. It was his, and he despised it. He set it aside for something in this world, for something that was more important to him at the moment, which was a bowl of soup, okay? So he set aside. He despised the things of God. Now, later on, uh, Isaac uh, was old, and uh, he calls Esau and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessing. Go out and uh, shoot a deer and cook me up some of that venison I really like. Bring it in, and uh, then I'm going to eat it, and then I'll bless you. And you know the story how Jacob and his mama conspired while Esau was gone. They cooked up some, uh, some meat, and they masqueraded it as venison, and then they dressed uh, uh, Jacob up in Esau's clothes. And anyway, they fooled this blind old man, and uh, Isaac blessed Jacob and said, I gave him the blessing. Now, when Esau came in and he saw what had happened here, he began to cry. And he said, Daddy, isn't there a blessing left for me? And his dad said, no. In fact, I want you to look back at the last part of verse 17. It says, he, that is Esau, was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find an opportunity for repentance. Now, Esau never repented of taking the things of God and setting them aside of disdaining or showing contempt for the things of God. He wanted his father to repent. His father had given his younger brother the blessing, and Esau wanted, wanted Isaac to repent of that blessing and give him the blessing instead. And Isaac said, no, I'm not going to. It's spoken. He didn't understand that the way God works is through the word, and as the word is spoken, it has power. It couldn't be taken back. There was no opportunity for repentance there, and so Esau was broken up in tears because he had disdained the things of God and he fell short of the grace of God. See that? And so the writer says, hey, uh, don't be like Esau. Don't take the things of God and set them aside because you're going to fall short of the grace of God. Beloved, you know, it seems to me that uh, we see a lot of contempt for the things of God today. And I don't just mean in our culture. I think we do see in that culture. But many of God's people kind of are following the culture along. And you know the way it comes out a lot of times with us. It's like, well, I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to go to church. 
I'm too busy to spend time in the Word to read my Bible every day and spend a quiet time with the Lord. I'm too busy for prayer or prayer meeting. And what happens is, is we take the things of God and we set them aside. Now, I understand that I'm preaching to the choir here. And, uh, and I understand that, you know, we've just, we just talked about, um, uh, you know, falling short of God's grace. And maybe all of us here are running that race hard. Let, let me just give us the warning, okay? And if it doesn't apply to you, maybe it applies to somebody else, okay? But like take church attendance, for example. And again, preaching to the choir. You know, over the last couple of years, we've, we've just seen a massive shift in the way that people, uh, you know, that people worship God together. Uh, something called COVID-19 came along, and I don't know exactly how it worked. And I'm not just talking about our own church, but, uh, uh, but you know, churches all across this country. And every pastor I talk to, the same type of thing. We've never seen all the people that quit coming because of COVID come back. Something happened. And, and, you know, in the face of that, you know, we read, for example, in Hebrews 10, 25, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. And somebody says, well, I... I'm going to forsake the assembly of myself, maybe because I'm afraid or because. So I'm going to take the thing of God and I'm going to set it aside. Or somebody else says, in fact, not too long ago, I was, you know, talking to a man who is a member of our church and I uh, hadn't seen him in church for a while. And I was, you know, just saying, hey, man, I miss seeing you, blah, blah. And, and, he, um, and he just indicated to me that, well, and, and this is, goes back to the bitterness part, but somebody had said something or not said something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he had taken offense at it. He got mad, and he said, you know, I, if, if, that's the way, if that's the way that church is and those people are, I mean, it's one person, right? It said, but if that's the way they are, notice how we're all kind of lumped in together, then, you know, forget it. What's the point? In other words, I'm taking the things of God. He says, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together, but somebody offended me, so I'm taking his word over God's word. See how I've taken the things of God, and I've just set it aside. Right? You understand that? I've, I've shown contempt for the things of God. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's I just don't have, you know, time to... Uh, you know, to spend time in the Word every day. I know that God, you know, wants to have a relationship with me and that I do that as I get into the Word and prayer. And so a quiet time with God is vital. But I don't have time for that or I got other things going on or it's just not that important to me. What I'm doing is, is I'm taking the things of God and I'm setting them aside and showing contempt or prayer, you know. You know, the most neglected hour in our church live in the week is prayer meeting, is, is the prayer hour, okay? And somebody said to me one time, well, Brother Greg, I don't need to come to church and pray with everybody else. I can pray at home. Right, you can. Praise God. But you know, if you begin to study the Scripture and you recognize that there is power in the church as the people of God gather and call on the name of the Lord together, and what happens is if we say, well, that's not important to me. I'm taking the things of God. And I'm just showing contempt. And all I'm saying is, and this is a very, very subtle thing. It's very, very subtle. I'm just saying when, when the things of God just aren't important to me, I'm falling short of the glory of God. I'm not demonstrating Christ in my life so others aren't seeing him, but I'm also falling short of his glory, and I'm causing others to fall short as well. 
And this is why we are all in this thing together, all right? As the people of God, as the children of God, endure racing. How do I know if I'm falling short of God's glory Well, or, or God's uh, grace? Well, first of all, if there's bitterness in my life, if I'm refusing to forgive, or if I'm showing contempt or offering contempt to the things of God. Let me give you one final thing here, and that is when the religion becomes more important than the relationship. Look down at verse 18. For you have not come, he says, and he's going to use the example of two mountains here. Watch the two mountains. He says, for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Now, what he's talking about there is Mount Sinai, okay? This is in the Exodus. You can read about that in Exodus 19, this, this account here. He says, instead, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriad of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembling of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who's called God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, praise God, into the sprinkled blood which says better things than Abel. Now, Mount Sinai was the place that that God brought the people after they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And Exodus 19, again, you go read about it. They, get to, they get to Sinai, and it looks like a volcano. Man, it is covered in smoke. Ground is shaking and everything. And God says, Moses, I want you to come on up here. I'm going to give you something. Right? He's going to give him the law. And Scripture says, man, Mo Moses is shaking in his boots. Who wouldn't be? In fact, what they did was they built a, a fence around the mountain because he said, anybody, listen, you just can't come to God in any old way, right? And so, and so anybody that even touches the mountain, an animal just wanders onto the mountain, it's going to die because God is holy, he is separate, and he is set apart. So this is Mount Sinai that speaks of the holiness of God and the separation that we have from God because of our sin. And how do I come to God? I come by the law, right? This is the way I come on Mount Sinai, and I've got to be perfect. I better be, because if I just violate one aspect of the law, I violated it all, okay? So there's the first mountain. Second mountain is Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is one of the three mountains that Jerusalem sets on. You've got the Mount of Olives, you've got Mount Moriah, and then you've got Mount Zion. It's the tallest of the three, by the way. And it represents, it represents... Well, it represents God himself. In fact, look at what it says down here. You've come to Mount Zion, he says in verse 22. That's the city of the living God. That's where God lives. So you're coming to, to the place of God where he dwells permanently. He says, and uh, to myriad of angels. The angels are the servants of God. And so you're coming into the presence of these servants of God, the presence of God himself, to a festive gathering. And, beloved, a relationship with God is more like a party than it is a funeral, all right? And I know sometimes, you know, we, we kind of act like we're at a funeral service when we're really at a celebration of the living God. 
Listen, he said, you had not come to a funeral. You've, you've come to life, man. And this is a festive uh, gathering, he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn. So now there's community. So it's not just me and God. There is, but there's us. And so we share this together, the assembly of the firstborn. He says, and to a judge, and the judge is the one that pronounces rightness or wrongness, and this God has pronounced me right in his sight through Christ Jesus because he said to the judge, who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people, that's us, made perfect in him, right? So he's the one that declares us right. This is where we're coming. Not to that... Not to that uh, mountain down there where we're separated from God and we're scared to approach him. Now we come boldly into the presence of God. And how do we do that? Through Christ Jesus. Look, and verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The one that stands on one side and takes the hand of God the Father. On the other side takes me and brings us together. This is who we are. He said, we're not that old-time religion thing where this is what we have to do to be right with God. We are in this right relationship with God through Christ Jesus. So now we can come directly into his presence and we can worship him, know him, commune with him, everything else. So Mount Zion speaks of the law and religion. It's what you do to be right with God. Or excuse me, Mount Sinai is religion, what you do to be right with God. Mount Zion is the relationship where God has done something to make you right with him. And that something is Jesus, right? So where are we at? Well, we ought to be in Mount Zion. Now, not Mount Sinai. Now, if Mount Sinai is religion, he's not saying that religion is bad. All those things, you know, that I said about uh, worship and being in the house of the Lord and, uh, and Bible reading and study and meditation and prayer and service and ministry, all these things are part of our religion. That's what we do. Those are the religious things we do. The question here is, why do I do them? Do I do all of that in order to have a relationship with God? Or do I do all those religious things because I have a relationship with God? There's a difference. On the one hand, I do them because I'm supposed to. I go to church because I'm supposed to. The preacher is going to talk about me if I don't. And I pay my tithe because I'm afraid that if I don't, somebody's going to think better or whatever it is. And I, uh, yeah, I read my, it doesn't really matter anything to me but you know and I'm bored out of my gourd when I'm sitting in church but I do it because that's what I'm supposed to do that's what religious people do and the other side is all this stuff is just an outflow of who I am in Christ Jesus I don't go to church because I have to man I go to church to worship the living God man I want I can't wait I offer my tithes and offerings to him because he owns everything. It's my relationship. I know he's going to take. I'm not worried about those things. I'm looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. I'm in the word of God because it's life to me. I pray because I'm communing with the living God. You see, the relationship is what is vital. And all I'm saying is, is, is when we're focusing on the religion and that becomes the thing rather than the relationship, we're falling short of the glory of God. We're not, reach, we're not receiving everything that we want. And let me just remind you, again, how subtle this is. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching along there. And, and uh, right towards the end, in chapter 7 of Matthew, he says, you know, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Really? If I say, Lord, Lord, 
I'm not going to I might not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will then? He says, because on that day, we're talking about that day when I stand before God the judge, on that day, somebody's going to say, hey, Lord, <laughs> hey, Lord, you and me, Lord, man, I prophesied in your name. I preached for 20 years at that first Baptist church there. Hey, Lord, I cast demons out in your name. Hey, Lord, I did miracles. I mean, things that people couldn't explain. I did them all in your name. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to look at that old boy and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Watch this. I never knew you. I never knew you. You are, I don't, I don't think I know you. What's your name, son? I don't know. I never knew you. Beloved, watch this. All the things that we do for God, Everything that you do for God is absolutely meaningless and worthless apart from your relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, you can go to church every day of your life and it'll be meaningless in eternity. Nothing. You can give all of your money. You can give your body. You can do all of those things apart from your relationship with Christ. It is all pointless, meaningless. It'll be nothing. And to stand before God one day and have him say, well, all that stuff is, is okay, but I never knew you. <laughs> and, I, and I'm only letting family in here. <laughs> you understand? What's more important to you? What's vital in your life? Do you have a relationship with the living God? Do you know him? If you don't know him, you've already fallen short of the grace of God. I, um, I've entitled this sermon, The Ministry of Faith. And uh, I, I meant that in two ways. First of all, our faith ministers to us. Right? First of all, by faith we see God. And we experience the fullness of the grace of God. Apart from faith, we don't see God and we don't experience His grace. So it ministers to us. But our faith also ministers to others. As we live by faith, run by faith, walk by faith, face trouble by faith, do everything. What, as we live by faith, well, other people see Jesus. And then other people have the opportunity to experience the grace of God as well as our lives bear witness and testimony to his power. Notice, without this, no one is going to see the Lord. Beloved, people are not impressed by what you believe. They're impressed by the change in your life that is made by Christ as you walk by faith, as you run the race of faith. And all I want to ask you to do today is just check your ministry. Do you have one? Do you have a ministry of faith in your own life? And what does it look like in you? Are you enduring in your run? Have you dropped out? Have you stopped? Has something knocked you aside? Have you quit for some reason? Or have you never gotten in? Beloved, today is the day of salvation. And you're never going to make anything Nothing's ever going to make sense in your life apart from Jesus and your relationship with him. So today, it really is all about the relationship. Do you know him? 
And would you come to him? Father, I want to ask you today in the name of Jesus, Lord, as you just work and move in this place and in our lives, Father, that we might see you and God experience the full measure of your grace. And that might mean, Lord, that in some ways we're going to have to put some some unforgiveness and bitterness on this altar and give it up to you. And, Lord, we're going to have to ask you to forgive us. Uh, Or, Lord... Maybe we got to start taking seriously the things that you have called us to and that you want us to be in rather than showing contempt to you and your word. Or, Father, uh, maybe we just need to get over the things we do and recognize that it really is all about you. And instead of worrying so much about our religion, Lord, we just focus on this relationship and being with you. God, I pray you'd help us today as we come to this time of response. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.